0: Woke up this morning with my mom
1: Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin.
2: And I'm Bryant Monte.
1: Our show, Before You Go, is a sit-down with centenarians so we can hear firsthand accounts of history. Now, Bryant, wouldn't it have been cool to chat live with the one and only Fannie Lou Hamer?
2: Oh, yes. Wouldn't that be something? What would she say about the political landscape of today? I wonder what her... And I said, I'm
1: sick and tired.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Sick and We're tired of being
2: sick and tired, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> We're right there, right there with you, Ms. Hamer. Yeah. Well, talented librettist Diana Solomon Glover brings Fannie Lou Hamer's story to life in her new opera, This Little Light of Mine. The lucky city of Santa Fe gets the debut.
2: Hey, Diana. So we thank you so much for coming on our show.
0: Thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you guys.
1: Yes, yes. And to see you because I know you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's what Everything
2: matters most. Even better, but...
0: doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Let me just brag on Diana a bit. Um, we're going to, of course, discuss a lot of her accomplishments, but we can't even get through all of them because Diana is um I would I guess call you a classical singer or opera singer is but classical singer. Classical singer, yeah. Classical yeah. singer. Not too many people can pull that off for so many years. Um when you hear Diana sing, it's just Heavenly, it's amazing. And it's a lot of training comes from, um, I I think, good genes as well. I mean, your mom and my mom are both musicians, have known each other forever. And your mother is a talented opera singer. Audience members know I'm from St. Louis. So this is also St. Louis's own Diana Solomon Glover. And Diana, you're like writing operas now. (laughs) Tell us what a
0: librettist
1: is. Why don't we start there?
0: So a librettist is simply... The person who writes the words for an opera or a a musical uh, play, just
1: simply the person who writes the words. So the words go to the song, but you gotta research when you're talking about Fanny Lou Hamer.
0: Well, you absolutely do. when you're when you're doing something that's based on a historical figure, you certainly want to be accurate. Um, but you know, you take poetic license. Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, we do that in this opera. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you how it came about. Um, uh, I've been working with a composer by the name of Chandler Carter, who is a professor of uh, composition at Hofstra University uh, in Long Island. We've been friends for a very, very, very long time, more years than I'm going to tell you. Um, (laughs) He saw Uh, an advertisement from the Santa Fe Opera um, asking for submissions for a commission Mm. uh, from their initiative called Opera for All Voices. And this is an initiative that is aimed at uh, telling diverse stories, hearing from people in the community uh, who have been underrepresented, just, you know, let's say it that way. And so he emailed me and and said he wanted to write an opera about Fannie Lou Hamer and it, did I want to write the uh would I write the libretto and I wrote back expletive yeah with a, um, <laughs> an exclamation point um, it just so happened that I was it was, it was early in the morning I was kind of staring up into the just opened my eyes and was kind of staring up into the ceiling and saying okay what's next then I opened my email and here is this invitation uh, mm. to get involved with the the story of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, and it couldn't have come at a better time. Uh, so we started this journey back in, I think it was 2018, actually. We submitted the application mm-hmm. and we kind of didn't think any more about it because, you know, I mean, over the years we've auditioned for or submitted applications for everything, various and sundry things. And most of the time you don't get the thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we just put it out into the universe and then we just forgot about it. And um, that was in, um, I think, November, December. And then in March, we got uh, an email saying that they were interested in exploring further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we jumped and jumped up and down a little bit. (laughs) And uh, so then we... (laughs) They had some suggestions as far as what they wanted us to flesh out to give them a better idea of how we would treat the subject. So we did that. And um, I don't know, within a few weeks, we got another email and a call uh, saying that we had won the second commission. Um, And uh, we were just absolutely thrilled. And uh, later we had a conversation with the officials at at the Santa Fe Opera, the the Office of Community Engagement. Mm -hmm. When we got off the phone with him, I called Chan back up really quick and I said, they mentioned money. Right. do we get paid? (laughs) It's a that's well, I thought that's what
1: commission meant. You still were like, no way. (laughs) I you
0: know I was just like thrilled to be writing something. Honestly. Mm. I was Mm. thrilled to be writing something. And I, I was just stunned. I'm going to be able to write something and I'm going to get paid for it? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, that began our journey. A year after that, we did a workshop of the libretto mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, invited people that we thought um, should be there, friends and family, but then also notable people in the community who could give us, you know, uh, some valuable feedback yeah. and when we were done with the libretto reading, the audience was sobbing. Wow. Um, and then talk about that process,
1: Diana. A libretto reading. any music involved or is it literally just the words?
0: No music at all. It's just wow. as though you were reading the script of a play. A play. Yeah. you're just you're reading the words to determine if the story, Makes sense mm-hmm. if the the story has the arc you intend. If other people sitting there who have not had any exposure to this material, except you know all you're talking about it, mm-hmm. uh, can follow what is happening. And if they're falling asleep, or if they're sitting on the edge of their chairs, or something in between that. And uh, when we finished, people were were sobbing.
2: We'll have more with librettist Diana Solomon Glover when we return.
1: We're back talking about Fannie Lou Hamer with Diana Solomon Glover. Back at the convention, Senator Humphrey announced. Too much, too much. I assure you, Mrs. Hamer, we understand and appreciate what you have endured.
2: I mean, why do you think the story is so important? You look at today and what we're faced with and what we've been faced with over the years. Why is this so relevant now?
0: Because what has changed?
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: I mean, you know, there are things that have changed, but the same things that were happening in Mississippi are happening today. I think uh, after the civil rights movement, racism oppression went underground. Ah. And with this reckoning that happened in 2020 and the pandemic, mm-hmm. which I, which I considered to be part of the reckoning because the mm-hmm. pandemic set us down uh, on our butts mm-hmm. and forced us to look at things that we were too busy and distracted to see
1: mm-hmm.
0: that, you know, w- with this reckoning, these things are still happening. We don't have parity, we don't have equity. We have um, the, the Voting Rights Act that came about largely as a result of Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony to the 1964 Democratic National Convention Credentials right. Committee mm-hmm. has been gutted. Yes. So we are back to states rushing to enact laws to increase voter turnout to to disenfranchise voters Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and we should be going the opposite direction making voting easier so the things that fannie lou hamer was saying in 1964 she would be saying today what what look at all what i did Mm -hmm. why why is this still happening now, she was born in
1: 1917.
0: 1917,
1: yes. Let's talk about this woman who had, I mean, what a life she had before even her activism, which she didn't do until her 40s. I mean, she was preparing for it. She was active and she was like making stuff happen and had all these siblings, the youngest of possibly 20. 20. She was I mean, the, the youngest the, uh, uh-huh. yeah, of 20 children. Wow, and <laughs> work as a sharecropper. Let's talk let's give her her flowers.
0: Yeah, so born in 1917, the youngest of 20 children, um, I want to tell you what her her full name is. and I, I just learned this. Oh. Her full name was Fanny Alma Louise Du Bois, Townsend Hamer just, you know, a little point of fact there. Oh, my. Oh, wow. uh, but the youngest <laughs> of 20 children sharecropping cropping family um, uh, handed down. Yeah, she was very intelligent. She, she did get, uh, I think she got as far as the sixth grade. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, at those times, children, black children weren't able to go to school, a sharecropper family, so that would include black and white children, mm-hmm. were not able to go to school during the harvest season. Uh, okay. So they got you know, a few months of education a year, uh, but mm-hmm. she had to leave school in order to, um, to, to work, mm-hmm. to help the family, to help feed the family. And as we know, sharecropping really was just another st- another name for slavery because it indentured a family to um, a, a plantation owner. You were um, always indebted.
1: You'd work the land, you know, and then pay your, your tenancy, but you were always indebted to someone.
0: You were always indebted. You were never, you never caught up. You mm-hmm. had to, you bought the seeds, you bought, you, you rented the tools, you had to pay for your clothing, and this was all given as an advance, so wow. at the end of the season, you always owed more. Mm-hmm. Um, than what you made. So it was a way to keep cheap labor, ne- nearly free, free labor. And where she, wherever she was, from what I understand,
1: she was one of the few who could read, though. And, yes. Yeah. Yes,
0: she could read, and uh, she knew math. And so the, the, her plantation owner discovered early on that she had these uh, capabilities. And Mm -hmm. so she was eventually put in charge of weighing the cotton and counting the wages and uh, uh, counting the time of the workers. Mm -hmm. She worked like that for more than 18 years in and out of the man's household and as, uh, uh, picking cotton and wow. looking after his business. So she was, she identified herself as different as, um, I don't want to use the word special as, mm-hmm. as capable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the landowner put those talents to use. Mm, yeah.
2: Just so I understand, or that our audience also understands, did you choose her or how did how did this come about? You said, "I'm going to write about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer." The composer, or did you have other options? The composer, the composer,
0: Chandler Carter,
2: okay.
0: had uh, been thinking about this for, mm. I don't know, uh, maybe a decade, maybe more. Wow! Uh, and so when this commission presented itself, he felt it was the perfect opportunity to to write about Fannie Lou Hamer. Very,
1: very nice. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. So, when did her um push to uh, get more voters in the area, we're talking Mississippi, uh, <laughs> to get power in the people um, that she was going to take an active role. When did that happen? I mean, it was in the right, well, 40s, about, but... About
0: 1962, mm-hmm. SNCC, yeah. the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, came into, into Mississippi. So mm-hmm. they had started then going into these rural areas to educate uh, Blacks and to register Blacks to vote and to identify people in the community who could be helpful with those efforts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, because of course, you're going to be less wary of someone you've worked beside, someone you've known all your life or, you know, uh, know, most of your life. But a, a, a young SNCC worker visited her she was i think she was in her sweeping around her front porch and um you know asked her to come to a meeting well actually one of her friends a friend mm. who had been to one of these meetings asked her to come and uh first she said i don't have time for that mess they taught us that mess in school and has turned me off mm. um but her friend kept nagging and so she decided to go and reverend james bevel was addressing the audience at a Mm -hmm. church and, you know, basically sermonizing. And it was at that meeting that she learned for the first time, she was, I believe she was 44 years old. She learned for the first time that she had the right to vote, that the Mississippi constitution gave her the right to vote. She did not know until that moment. Wow. Uh, And from that moment, she did everything she devoted her life to raising Black Mississippians to uh, the status of first-class citizens, as she called it. Devoted her life, almost
1: lost her life in certain situations. Let's talk about that. I mean, two stand out, two incidents. I don't know if you know more, but forced sterilization through a hysterectomy and being beat up, literally
0: physically assaulted yeah talk about those yeah so so i you know i was doing a little research it seems and i you know i never knew this and you know most of the you know most people don't know this but the united states had a practice of eugenics yeah and all but i think about 12 states by 1935 all but about 12 states only 12 states did not have eugenics laws on the books. Mm, That's astounding. It is. So these states that did have eugenic laws were legally permitted to sterilize people who they considered un, who were considered unfit persons. The definition was persons afflicted with hereditary forms of insanity that are recurrent, idiocy, imbecility, feeble-mindedness or epilepsy. And Mississippi passed its eugenics laws in uh, 1928. So they had been sterilizing uh, men and women since nineteen twenty eight. And as the civil rights movement gained momentum. And and even before that, like in the in the late 30s, then this practice of, of forced sterilization started to increase. And then certainly by the, by the the early civil rights movement, white Southern politicians, local officials, and doctors saw sterilizing black women as a key way to maintain the power of white supremacy amid the erosion of the Jim Crow South. And it's estimated that um, more than 60,000 people were sterilized in 32 states in the 20th century. Whoa. Um, I will add, by the way, this is a kind of a sidebar, but the U.S. was also sterilizing Puerto Rican women until uh, uh, close to the 1970s. And that was due to the notion that the island was overpopulated, and they mm. wanted to make the island more successful and modernize the island. And the 2 pronged way to do that was to sterilize postpartum women, and to or to encourage people to migrate to the, the to New York or other parts of the U.S. Um, but I digress.
1: Yeah, um, we have uh, a former president who would use the word "breeding" freely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's to sweet. kind of bring that back, yeah. <laughs> make that's so it. sweet. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so, make, it, make it look so nice and sweet, bless his heart. Right. <laughs> oh,
2: now, no, just so we understand, I'm, I'm just trying to understand and visualize something like that taking place. And um, how was that done? Do we understand how that was done? In, no, it was fa-
1: done. Mm-hmm. In, Go ahead. One, in Fannie Lou Hamer's case, she went in yeah. for a different operation.
0: She went in for a minor, minor surgical procedure. Mm -hmm. And was and was given a hysterectomy. And that's the way they did it. It was involuntary. Mm -hmm. People did not know until it was already done. And she didn't know for a very, very long time, presumably a cousin or someone close Mm -hmm. to the family spilled the information to her. Mm-hmm. So she was never told by the doctor himself, or even by, you know, a loved, you know, someone who, who cared about her. She, it was, it was gossip. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and so that's how she learned. I read it's the, um, Mississippi, the Mississippi, Mississippi appendectomy. appendectomy.
1: It yeah. was
0: so prevalent in Mississippi mm-hmm. that it went by the, the term was coined, Mississippi appendectomy you go in for you know a sore throat
1: mm-hmm.
0: you come out knock you out and paralyzed. there you go yeah yeah disgusting quite prevalent it's it's just very hard to imagine yeah and then the
1: other trial she went through was so, being uh, physically assaulted
0: yes yeah, so she was coming back in um 63 she was coming back from a voter registration workshop on the bus with uh Several other people. And um, they were stopped in Winona, Mississippi. Several people got off to go to the bathroom. and some people went to go to the restaurant to try mm-hmm. to get something to eat, you know, pushing. Of course, they knew that it would be, you know, uh, segregated. segregated. So that that pushed the issue. The sheriff was called. Uh, they, you know, dragged the people out, uh, Fannie Lou was, happened to stay on the bus at that time, but she saw the commotion. And so she got off the bus and she heard one of the law enforcement officers yell, get that one there. And they grabbed her. They kicked her. They uh, took them to uh, the jail. They were isolated. Uh, she was put in a cell by herself Mm -hmm. and she could hear while she was in the cell, she could hear people being beaten. And uh, one uh, girl in particular, there was a girl, Annette Pounder, uh, who she heard being beaten. And also this young activist, a 15-year-old, June Johnson, who is one of the characters in our opera, was also beaten. And she heard the officer saying to June Johnson, can you say, yes, sir, nigger? And June Johnson says, yes, I can say, yes, sir. Well, then say it. She said, why is it so important to you for me to say that? And mm-hmm. so, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer listened to her being beaten. Then not long after that, the sheriff came with two Negro prisoners and ordered these prisoners to beat her with blackjacks. Oh, my God. They didn't want to do it. Whether it, uh, they, I think they got these people liquored up. They still didn't want to do it. And the sheriff said to them, if you don't do it, you know what will happen to you. So they commenced to beating her with these blackjacks. They beat her her back. They made her lie down, face down on the bed. They beat her all over. Her dress lifted above her head. Mm-hmm. And uh, she tried to pull her dress down. And that infuriated the, uh, the, the policeman even more. Um, he started to beat her in the head right and uh you know that that went on for a while and this is part of the testimony that she gave to the credentials committee mm.
1: um
0: she never it was a beating she never recovered from
1: right
0: uh, and uh in part the injuries led to complications that later resulted in health problems that you know contributed to her death To yeah. beat people into submission
2: Ooh. You know, it just shows you the wickedness of, of man in many ways. And yes. during that time, I mean, just to continue to stand and continue to fight, press forward, even after all of that. I mean, that's why I truly am, I mean, I love the Civil Rights Movement and just so many people that came from uh, those that time. I mean, we're so thankful for that.
1: We'll be back to talk more about Fannie Lou Hamer when we return. Every- We're back with more about Fannie Lou Hamer.
2: I just wondered what continued to fuel her passion, her, her fire, if you will, to keep going and to do more and to not stop.
0: She was a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. She talked to God. Yes. You know, there's not a lot of talk about her having, you know, conversations with God. Um, but it's evident in the way, in her behavior, in the stance that she took in, uh, in her, the courage was motivated by this unflailing, unwavering faith. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, uh, was it John Lewis calls it the spirit of history. You could call oh. it faith, you could call it God, but John Lewis referred to it as the spirit of history. It's like you come to a moment and there's something that's kind of preternatural that, that that takes you and carries you and uses you, uses what you have to push history forward, to push mankind forward. And um, that was Fannie Lou Hamer. She had a deep, 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 and abiding faith. She had a certainty.
2: Mm-hmm. She
0: had a certainty, and she which she always had was obvious. Mm-hmm. But when she realized that she didn't have to, she didn't have to take the life that had been doled out to her mm-hmm. that she could stand up and demand something more, she was undeterred. She said, "Absolutely, the only thing they can do is kill me. And they've been trying to kill me all my life.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: what was there to fear?
1: Well, she soldiered on. She formed her own political party, <laughs> right? And ended up on TV giving a speech. I mean, pretty amazing for someone who was a sharecropper.
0: Well, and that's the thing. Um, she was what some call a servant leader. Yeah. She was a person who was living the fight. Yes. Who was living the reality. She wasn't in an ivory tower. She wasn't, you know, reading books and, and uh, quoting Gandhi and, and, uh, (laughs) you know, meditating and she was living it. And that is what gave her the power. Yeah. That is what qualified her uh, more than the Democratic Party saying, "Okay, uh, mm-hmm. we'll let you do this."
1: <laughs> right. Her life
0: story was yeah. her cred; mm-hmm. those were her c- credentials. That beating mm-hmm. was her credentials. Yeah. What's your relationship to her now, Diana? I that that that's a that's a no one's asked me that question. I have to think about that. Um, I feel her. Yeah. I feel her, I feel like I understand what she must've been thinking, Mm -hmm. that she knew that she was protected Mm -hmm. in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. She may have had fear about specific things, but she was not afraid.
2: Mm.
0: I can feel that. From her, oh. and that's one of the reasons that I'm going to Mississippi. I wow. wanna, I just, I wanna breathe the air that she breathed. I wanna walk, feel the soil, and wa- walk on the ground where she walked, and um, just, I don't know, try to try to live some of that.
2: Mm. What, what part of Mississippi, by the way?
0: Ruleville, which is in Sunflower Ruralville. County, which mm-hmm. is about two hours two hours and some change from memphis i'm flying into memphis and -hmm. then i'll rent a car and drive to ruleville it's um i don't know a few miles from i think cleveland Mm. uh it's a few miles from indianola which i think is the county seat and that's where she tried to register uh first tried to register uh, and was turned away because um, she was told that, uh, oh, they had to pass a literacy test. Oh. Uh, oh. So she was asked to read a paragraph from a very obscure statute that no one who doesn't have a degree, Legal degree. in law would be able to interpret. Oh, and yeah. uh, she said, what did she say? I know... Uh, I can't remember exactly the exact quote, but wh- whatever it was, she said, I know as much about this as a horse knows about Christmas day. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so the the clerk said, well, you fail the literacy test. And she and the other people who had gone with her, I think there were 18, 20 of them were all turned away oh, that no. day. Mm-hmm. So I want to go to Indianola. I also want to go to, uh, she's not buried in rule in, um, I know she didn't want to be buried near the plantation that she worked on, but I I want to go to her Mm. to her grave site. Um, And I also think there is a marker that is being put at the where the site of the jail where -hmm. she was beaten in Winona. I want to go. I'm not sure that I'll get to Jackson. There is a Fannie Lou Hamer Institute in Jackson. Uh, Mm. But I I like Jackson. Yeah, yeah. I will be meeting with her last surviving daughter. Now she she adopted two children, correct? She adopted actually four, four children. Wow. two children, two children. Dorothy Jean, who was also one of the characters in the opera, mm-hmm. and then she adopted the second girl, baby girl. And Dorothy Jean had two children. Dorothy Jean uh, suffered from nosebleeds, and uh, mm. and uh, in fact died, I think, about the age of 27 of um, fibroid tumor, untreated fibroid tumors. Oh, my
1: goodness. Um, Mm. And so
0: she left these two young children. Fannie Lou adopted them. And this is the last, the youngest, Jacqueline Mm -hmm. Hamer Flakes. So I will get to meet her. Uh, She's also written a little book called Mama Fannie, Growing Up the Daughter of Civil Rights Icon Fannie Lou Hamer. So she tells some very delicious things that um, you know haven't been told in uh, the uh, biographies. Mm-hmm. Um, you nice. know some things that that transfer between parents and mom, moms and daughters.
2: If you don't mind, but I wanted to ask about opera in general because, for those of us maybe less sophisticated. <laughs> uh.
0: Don't
2: put it that well, way. Well, yeah, that's don't, don't right. Put that okay, don't put yourself less, down. Uh, okay, I won't put myself down. <laughs> yes. but, but I want to kind of understand that art because that's something that I really have not participated in, mm-hmm. uh, even though my grandmother started a black theater troupe in Phoenix, Arizona awesome. called the Black Theater Troupe. Yeah. Uh, still going strong today, and you know, I grew up around black theater. Excellent. But um, when it comes to opera, how was it so unique, and how is this story going to really – Set it off, if you will, for those that come to the to the show.
0: Well, one thing about the approach that we have taken, it is is it is very accessible. So there are some known civil rights uh, anthems, like, won't let nobody turn me around. Uh, this little light of mine is in there. Go tell it on the mountain. And then there are also some newly composed things that are spiritual like. So it's it's very it's very accessible. It's also a one act mm-hmm. opera, so it's about 75 minutes. So it's not like you know Wagner no, where you have to go for the whole day. Right. <laughs> you, you, you have to pack a lunch. And uh, so it, it's it's accessible and it's um short and it moves along. And one of the things, you know, we're talking about reckoning. So opera companies symphonies, all of our artistic institutions and, and corporations are really pushing to diversify to, in the case of, of our arts institutions, to tell stories of people who have been un- underrepresented. You still have, you know, an opera company board member who's, you know, of a certain age who'll say, well, I just want my, I just want my Labo M." I just want my Carmen. Why can't we just have that? The American tapestry is saturated with the blood and sweat and tears of Fannie Lou Hamer and people like Fannie Lou Hamer on their climb up the ladder from separate to equal. And we cannot tell the fullness of American history without illuminating these heroes. And heroes who particularly who push immovable, stubborn systems such as this nation toward its loftiest ideals are the very stuff of opera. So why wouldn't we be telling these stories? And these words, words of Fannie Lou Hamer, words of John Lewis, of, of, of these heroes, must be heard on our most storied stages. Amen. And not to mention, Opera audiences are waiting for these stories. I mean, if you look at the s- success of Cincinnati opera with um, Castor and Patience, uh, the review of that opera was just incredible. Omar at uh, in um, Charleston, Boletto Festival, Blue, and then at the Met, um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. People are waiting for these stories. Yeah, Diana, talk about some of your favorite roles as a performer. Um, let's see. I well, with with Chandler Carter, the the uh, composer for this little light of mine, he wrote an opera about Nelson and Winnie Mandela, uh, which was performed in two thousand one, um, called No Easy Walk to Freedom, and I premiered Win- Winnie, and my ex husband Andre was uh, Nelson, um, so. <sighs> I missed this. <laughs> you missed this. Yes. I totally missed it. It would have been awesome to see you too. Yeah. 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 I've done uh, some a standard rep Oscar and Umbalo in Mascara, um some Lucia in uh, Lucia di Lammermoor, some lyric coloratura kinds of things, Susanna in The Marriage of Figaro. But what I have really enjoyed is more is is more contemporary stuff. And that was the case with the uh, the Nelson
1: Mandela opera. Amazing. And also in Diana's history is another singer. (laughs) This is a a bizarre. Uh, Well, look, it's family. It's family. And (laughs) and I consider Diana family, my extended family. But I was shocked as well as Diana to hear that um, a very famous singer and performer uh, was uh, very closely related to you. Do you want to give us the highlights of how you found out your father was the late, great Robert Guillaume?
0: Well, 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 well. <laughs> Ooh, this will be the first time that I've talked about this and you know anything that's going to be live in posterity. <laughs> so Robert Guillaume and my mother, June Bosley at the time were members of a quartet. Uh, that would be 1956. Oh. <laughs> uh, and they traveled together. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's when it happened. My sister found some pictures of my mother and this in this quartet. And she looked at them and she said, huh. She kind of Diana kind of looks like him. And, you know, there, there were none of the family ever said anything. There was never any mention of anything. Although in hindsight, I grew up feeling as though everyone knew something I didn't know. Uh, so my sister found these pictures. And so the story got corroborated by a cousin mm. whose mother, who's now uh, deceased, when they were watching Benson, Benson. or Soap, said to them you know, that's Diane's father. So they just lived with that casual mention until my sister brought it to uh, my cousin. And he said, you know, my mother said that, well, she'd never said anything like that to me. So when my, when my sister brought that information to me, I said, okay, let's do the DNA test because I was sure that it was not true. Okay. Let's just do it and, you know, put this to rest. So, the DNA test came back and it said that there is um 43.1% chance that you are full siblings and a 98.6% that you are half siblings. Wow. So, I called my mother and I said, uh, Mom, uh, Reese and I just took a DNA test. And then the kind of all the air went out of the room. She was like, (gasps) oh, and then was the disclosure. Uh, But she, to this day, maintains that she didn't know.
1: And, you know, that's her right. Mm -hmm. But I got to imagine there's some relief that you now know.
0: You know, when I learned that, so many things fell into place for me. Yeah.
2: And how old were you at the time when you found out?
0: Sixty. Were... Really recently. Five
1: years ago. Which is also so special that you got to spend Mr. Guillaume's last
0: couple of years, or was it one year? It was one year, right? Not not quite Nine. a year. And um, my mother, incidentally, had his telephone number, and um, <laughs> he was 80, uh, 89.
2: Mm. So I did call him. I'm I'm curious. What was the conversation like that last year you had with him?
0: He started talking about New York. It brought back memories of New York because, you know, none of his other, none of the other siblings are involved in the arts. And Mm -hmm. so he started talking about what I first, I thought was Lincoln Center, but he kept describing it. And I said, I think you're talking about city center. Wow. I said, that's where Alvin Ailey has their Their season season every year. Alvin Ailey, I sang in Revelations. I said, wow, I Mm. sing in Revelations. You do? Oh. Oh, wow. So I started to sing some of Revelations and he tried to sing with me, although he was, you know, he couldn't get his breath,
2: but he tried to sing
0: with me. And from that moment on, it was, you know, it was a fait accompli. Diana,
1: my friend, (laughs) you are true. You are a true storyteller.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna to go to the opera now. Yay. <laughs> Come to Santa Fe I need to go to Santa, Santa, Santa Fe, Fe and it starts when?
2: when October
0: twenty 29th, and thirtieth.
2: October twenty eighth.
0: Terrific. Yeah. Yay.
1: From Saint Louis, Missouri to stardom. Thank you, Diana.
2: <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Diana. What a talent. I mean, and Fannie Lou Hamer. Wow. Now, we have even more iconic figures on our website at BeforeYouGo.tv. And before we go... We want
1: to remind everyone to support the arts. This way, like us, you'll help keep history alive.
2: That's right, Nicole, so make a plan soon for a night at the theater. Or how about the opera?
1: Yeah, there's no time like the present. What What a a a gift. gift.